everyone, and welcome to Between Two Studs. I'm Alex Studd. And I'm Ron Studd. Ron, episode 17. Here we are. Wow. We, we, you, we, we made it. How you doing tonight? I'm doing good. Yourself? I'm doing fantastic. But, you know, I, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. We got to bring our A game. Okay. I don't know about you, Ron. For me, there, there are two professions that if I were to meet someone in one of those two professions, I feel like I got to bring my A game. Like I feel like not that I'm being judged, but that I feel like I got to impress them. There's two professions. One, anyone who's in psychology, a psychologist, which we already interviewed one of them. Right. The other, recruiter. And guess what? We have a recruiter on tonight. So I'm just saying, got to bring your A game. Tonight, we're, we're bringing on Ed Cisse. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. Welcome. Welcome, Ed. Nice to have you on. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, definitely great to be here. I was uh, looking forward to this, and Alex and I are uh, former co-workers, and you know, I was definitely interested in hearing a little bit more. I follow the IG page or the Instagram page, that is, and definitely excited to be on an episode. No, well, I think, I think this is going to be a really fun episode because I think especially with what's happened over the past year, recruiting has become a really, it's a very tough job. And I think that what's kind of interesting is for all of us, it's like there's almost a ton of kind of like superstitions about, okay, well, when you apply, here's what not to do. Here's what you should do. And, you know, there's all of these things where you're like, well, there's algorithms out there that are just going to send this into the trash bin. So it's, it's going to be interesting to talk to you and hear a little bit about how all that really works. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And being now in the industry for um, almost about seven years now, there's, there's, there are definitely some quirks and some items that, you know, we sort of look for out of, you know, potential candidates that might be a fit. But you know, definitely uh, looking forward to diving a little bit further into it and talking a little bit more about the trade. Absolutely. And before we do that, though, we mm-hmm. have what what was called the fire round. Mm-hmm. Now we call it the ember round. All right. All right. So these are questions we ask every one of our guests. Want to get to know you a little bit better. Mm-hmm. You kind of mentioned it earlier, but how do you know us? Yeah, so I know Alex. I am currently the talent acquisition lead at Dialogue Tech, and Alex uh, Alex joined us um, about a year and a half ago. He's no longer with the organization, but uh, Alex and I became you know pretty close and uh, just met Ron. Uh, but Ron and Alex look, you know, you two look exactly identical. <laughs> Spitting so, images, right? Yeah, exactly, for sure, for sure. And uh, Alex, you, 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 you know, I always, I always tell you this, but you're. Yeah, you're definitely a character. You're, you know, the life of the party at DT, and uh, that's uh, it was it was it was an absolute no-brainer to hire you, you know, at that point. So it was uh, definitely a pleasure having you aboard. Well, appreciate the kind words. Tell yeah, us a little bit a bit about you. What are your yeah. interests? What are your hobbies? Yeah. So um, outside of work, um, I'm originally from Glenview, Illinois, which is a local suburb here in Chicago. Big Chicago sports fan. Diehard Cubs fan, really, really big into football, more specifically college football as well. Um, I live here in Lakeview, actually about two blocks east of uh, Wrigley Field as well. You know, in my spare time, kind of hanging out with family and friends. I also have a, an awesome dog named Otto as well, too. But other than that, just, you know, enjoying the life, living in the best city in the world, in my opinion. <laughs> we ask all of our guests um, one of our favorite mm-hmm. questions to ask, what are you drinking tonight? 
Yeah, so currently I am drinking this bourbon whiskey from Driftless Glen, and it's from a um, it's from a distillery handcrafted in Barbu, Wisconsin, and it was a uh, it was a present given to me from uh, my fiance's brother over our engagement um, party. So typically, either drink it uh, just dry, just neat, or just on the rocks with uh, one one big ice cube, but this is typically my go-to if I'm ever drinking, if I'm ever drinking like whiskey or, or anything like that. Very nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and Ron and I, we're going to share what we drank too, what we're yeah. drinking. But, but I will say you're our second guest based in Chicago. Okay. And, and, and I have to say, just like we did for the first shot with Lori, for, mm-hmm. the, for the first interview with Lori, <laughs> we are going to take a shot of Malort for you. Yes. Cool. On your cool. behalf. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, delicious every time. It's Ron, better. I know. It gets better every single time. The more you drink it, the more of the complexity that you start to take that you get to enjoy. But we're going to talk about it a little bit later when we, we talk are. about we when we talk about Chicago culture, <laughs> which is something very important. And you know, as someone who's been living here almost two years now, that I find mm-hmm. really important. But before we do that, Ron, what are you drinking tonight? Tonight, I'm drinking Evan Williams Single Barrel Vintage. I'm having it on the rocks. Just uh, haven't even tried it yet, so here's here's to trying a little sip of it and see what I get. Have you not had this before? You know what? I've had it before. Ooh, very, very smooth. Got some caramel, some vanilla, a little bit of honey in there. Um, wow. Loving it. So, and Alex, what are you drinking tonight? Well, you know, it's funny, Ron. I've noticed in every episode we've had up until now, we've only ever had a straight drink. We've had a straight scotch, straight bourbon. And I realized, you know, one of my favorite drinks, it's a very easy drink, and it's in honor of our father, a rusty nail. And Ooh. a lot of people don't know what a rusty nail is. Ed, do you know what a rusty I nail is? I don't. Rusty nail is half drambuie, half scotch. And usually when I tell people that, the next question is, what is drambuie? What's drambuie? <laughs> drambuie is as best as I can understand it. And Ron, let me know. Okay. It's, it's a honey infused scotch so it's it's like a it, it, it has very much an element of a scotch but it's very much uh much very very sweet because it has the honey I and what i there's some herbal stuff with it as well but i mean it's not super heavy like so malort definitely is very very herbal the when you with drambuie i want to say there's some other things with it that give it a little bit of herbal infusion as well but yeah, it complements very nicely with, with uh, hmm. scotch. Well, what I was going to say is when I was a few years younger, I hated the taste of scotch and I could never figure out why. And it's, it's because of the peatiness, which, which I didn't know what that meant. It basically means the smokiness. And what I found was I could really enjoy scotch if I have it with drambuie, if I have it as a rusty nail, because the, the, that smokiness is kind of counteracted by the sweetness of the yeah, drambuie. And mm-hmm. then over time, I was actually able to slowly turn the drambuie down a little bit. And so obviously this isn't like a true rusty nail, but I'll usually have it more heavily towards the scotch now. But I do enjoy a little bit of the drambuie. So that was – I sort of used drambuie as sort of my introduction in getting into and enjoying scotches. So Very cool. And what kind of scotch are you drinking? I don't know if you already mentioned that. 
I didn't. I didn't. Uh, this is nothing special. You know, usually when I'm mixing the two, I usually go with a lower end scotch. This is just a doer's mm-hmm. white. But, you know, a scotch that I recommend uh, that I, I only had about a year ago for the first time and I really enjoy it when I'm having it straight or neat is mm-hmm. Monkey Shoulder. Have you had Monkey Shoulder? No, I haven't. I don't, I don't think I've even heard of it. It's Monkey really shoulder. good. I don't have I don't have much more to say about it. But, Ron, <laughs> it sounds like you're familiar with it. Yes, I've had it before. Very, very delicious. And yeah, can't go wrong with it, honestly. Well, yeah. And it's very moderately priced, right? It's yeah. not – you're not paying $100 for a bottle. It's hard for me to make cool. that justification, so. For sure, definitely. Ed, this is always a question we ask every one of our guests, and we've gotten some incredible responses. No mm-hmm. pressure, but mm-hmm. pick a piece of art. It can be anything, right? It doesn't have to be literally a Picasso. Mm-hmm. It can, yeah. be, can be music. can be a film. Pick anything that speaks to you or represents you in somehow and tell us about it. Interesting. I would, I would probably say, so I have this, um, I have this map of the city limits of Chicago and some of the surrounding suburbs. It's, it's actually a pretty, it's actually a pretty well-known map of Chicago that also illustrates the, um, uh, the train line. So the, uh, the L lines as well too. And it's like a yellow map. Um, and it just has, it it uh, basically cuts off from the start of uh, Lake Michigan and then like on on onward west onward west north and and uh, and south as well too. But I would say that that represents me because you know obviously my love for Chicago it's the best city in the world um, in my opinion and I also love geography I just love looking at maps and I'm just very like very much so focused on just geographical sort of images whether it be you know, different pictures, um, which I'm also really big into in like photography. Um, I don't, I'm not like a photographer myself, but I love looking at pictures. And then um, just like the different parts of Chicago and like how to, you know, how to get there, what what part of Chicago is is uh, closest to another part of Chicago and all the different neighborhoods as well too. So I'd probably say that. I love that response. And I, and I yeah. have to say for me, uh, and I'm curious Ron's take, but as a guy who's been living here not quite two years, and I don't feel that I've earned the the ability to refer to myself as a Chicagoan, I, I, have, I have tremendous respect for that. For for that, mm-hmm. and so it'll take many, many, many years for me to earn that right. But I will say this: I've never, I've never known a city where the people are as proud as mm-hmm. they are to be from Chicago. Yeah. Um, you know, Buffalo kind of rivals it a little bit, but Buff- Buffalo is so much smaller. Mm-hmm. Chicago, it's like it's this city that is kind of in the middle of nowhere. No offense. Like, like it's mm-hmm. kind of like no, you Chicago, mm-hmm. and then it's like, well, what else is in the Midwest, right? You have maybe yeah. St. Louis, mm-hmm. and and it is an incredible city that has so much history, and yet mm-hmm. at the same time, it's funny when I first moved here and before I lived here, you always hear the second city, right? Second city. And I always thought that was kind of derogatory. Like I was kind of like, well, like what? It's not as good as New York. Um, but I think people in Chicago like take pride in that. It's like, yeah, we're oh, not, yeah. we're not New York. We're better than New York. But like, sure. we don't, we don't care that we're a little under the under the radar. Like that's okay with yeah. us. Oh yeah, for sure. I think that's just like kind of like a Midwest nice kind of thing. I think you know most big cities in the Midwest, you know, they have a lot of prideful people that come from Cleveland or Indy. Uh, and basically anywhere in Wisconsin as well too, but everyone everyone typically is really prideful for you know where they come from and 
uh, they, uh, you know, love talking about how, how great that they're, you know, how great that their city is, but in comparison to New York, you know, we're, we're obviously smaller, uh, we're a lot cleaner, we're a lot cheaper. And, uh, in my opinion, um, it's just a lot, you know, better city. It's easier to, you know, move around. It's easier to get around. Um, but New York is awesome as well too. So, well, you know what I tell people, Ed, when I go back to the East coast, people who've never visited me. I've never been mm-hmm. to Chicago. When I tell them what Chicago is like, I always say, take the cleanliness of Boston, which Boston's a very clean city. Really? But take this, oh yeah. But take mm-hmm. the size of a not it's bigger than Philadelphia. It's not New York, but it but it, mm-hmm. it's a very large city and combine the two, but the cost of living is low, relatively mm-hmm. speaking, to those East Coast cities. And mm-hmm. that is Chicago. And, yeah. and I think it's great. It's got, it's kind of got the best of both worlds. It's got the cleanliness of like a Boston, but it's got the size of not quite a New York, but definitely a Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. For sure. So for me, I'll admit I've, I've driven by Chicago, but I've never mm-hmm. stopped into Chicago. But You've never Chicago. visited your brother? I, 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 <laughs> I will at some point. As a complete outsider to this conversation, I think one of the interesting things about Chicago specifically, at least from my vantage point, is I think Chicago stands out for a lot of different reasons compared to other cities, right? Mm-hmm. So you listed a bunch of other you know, larger Midwestern cities, but here's the kind of things that stand out in my mind, right? Your elevated trains, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely stand out. Those are iconic, right? Yeah. Number two, the river cutting through the city. Right, all those bridges back and mm-hmm. forth across the city, and and like you said, the cleanliness. But the big number three, the architecture. Right, mm-hmm. it is not like a lot of the other cities that you mentioned, where it stands on its own compared to New York. I think when it comes to skyscrapers. Oh, I think it exceeds New York. Not right. in not in terms of height. Right. But in terms of elegance, and, and the biggest thing you have to remember about that, Ron, is between 1871, which is when the city of Chicago burned to the ground, one-third of it did, I should say, and mm-hmm. 1900, it was the fastest-growing city on the planet. More people were f- flooding to, to Chicago than anywhere on the planet. And so when you think about that, you go, well, when was probably the glory days of, of American architecture? It was probably during that time period, yeah, right? Time. In terms of really beautiful, not ugly monstrosity concrete structures, we're talking right. about elegance. elegance. A bit of that Art Deco, a little bit of just what really I think separates. Okay, this is built for utilitarian reasons. This was built to be beautiful and to be well. And if you ever read *The Devil in the White City*, which is a fantastic book. Uh, that, mm-hmm. that was all about what was going on in Chicago in the early 1890s. Mm. That's a big discussion where they talk about um, this big this big divide between, well, when you look at a building, especially like an office building, is the value on what matters on the inside or is what really matters is the culmination of what matters on the inside and the outside and how it reflects the rest of the neighborhood? Mm-hmm. And that's a huge divide, right? This isn't just like, well, it, it, it's an office building. It's right. like, no, yeah. no, no, no. It, this is about how it will have an impact and reflect the rest of the neighborhood that's around it. Yeah, so I was actually going to say, even aside from, you know, just the overall architecture downtown, every, it, so it also seems like every neighborhood has like their, you know, specific kind of building or, you know, type of uh, three flat apartment building. 
that sort of stands out. Like Wicker Park has, you know, this 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 very unique sort of sense to how they, you know, have built their architecture and how all of their apartment buildings look. And the neighborhood also looks like Wicker Park. Um, and then, you know, you hop into, uh, let's just say Lakeview, for example, where it's a little bit different. And then, you know, Logan, Lincoln Park also has its own, you know, specific look to it. So does Old Town. So that in itself is very interesting. I don't know, I, I don't know necessarily if any other city has, you know, different neighborhoods that, you know, have a specific look to them, uh, just based on the architecture of, you know, uh, apartment buildings or, you know, storefronts, whatever that it might be. So uh, that's, in my opinion, you know, they're really cool and unique part about Chicago, but I just think that it's awesome. Well, Ed, congratulations. You passed the Ember round. <laughs> there we go. There we go. We're, we're going to want to get now. We're gonna, we're, you're on fire. It's absolutely right. <laughs> we're going to transition a little bit more into uh, a little bit more career focused. Very curious to talk about your day to day. Because for me, uh, when I first met you and you talked to me about how you graduated from Mon, uh, Monmouth College, business administration degree, and that was out mm -hmm. in rural Illinois. Yep. Uh, and you're from the city mm -hmm. and you move back to the city, but what got you into recruiting? Yeah. So uh, it was actually very unique. So my senior year, second semester, there was a friend of mine who had previously graduated. He was two years older than me, but he worked at this really small recruiting agency that was uh, in the suburbs and it was, you know, pretty close to, uh, to Glenview as well too. So I could, you know, uh, graduate, then, you know, live with my mom. And he was like, Hey, Ed, um, I work at this recruiting company. And I'm thinking like, we're at a baseball game, um, a few beers deep on a Saturday, second semester, senior year of college. And, you know, I'm thinking like, what, I don't even know what recruiting is like, like recruiting what, and he's, he's like, um, it's called technical recruiting, you know, jobs for professionals, uh, within the technology and IT space. And I'm like, I don't even really know anything about technology, to be completely honest with you. And uh, he's like, trust me, uh, there's, you know, there's obviously a large learning curve to it, but a lot of it is just really personality based. So, you know, you you love interacting with people, you have a great personality, and also you love helping people as well. Like, I just think that you, you know, would be a great fit for this. So. He was like, you know, you should uh, come down and interview um, in two weeks. I can send, you know, my manager your resume. And you know, that's basically all she wrote. I, um, I interviewed there, got the job, uh, and then I started. And the first thing that uh, they had sort of taught me was, um, if you don't know anything about the space, just get on the phone and start talking to people. Because everyone, and uh, this is, you know, specifically candidates, but just humans in general love talking about themselves and love uh, just generally giving someone else a story of their background uh, just to be able to sort of talk about yourself and learn, you know, other new and exciting things as well. So I spent about, you know, my first few months just talking to different people, uh, talking to different software engineers, learning about what they did, like just, just learning about different environments and learning about different technology skill sets, whatever that it might be. And I loved it. It was, it was awesome. And it was like, for me, it, there was, it was just like the light had really, you know, just went on when I initially got my first placement, which is, you know, you, you, you source someone, you recruit someone, and then you're able to then find an opportunity for them to advance in their career. 
so that to me was just like was 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 like my adrenaline every single day like i want to be able to help someone else in their career to advance themselves in their lives as well too and you know you also hear some of these really cool like personal stories uh of candidates that you know um were either laid off in their previous job and you know now that they need to they need to land another job to financially take care of their family and everything like that and there have been you know just a lot of great success stories and just doing that, you know, just really, really caught my interest and in what really got me into the space. And now I'm here um, at a at a small company and as as a sole recruiter as well. But it's just great, just overall, to help people and uh, to you know also help people advance in their lives. Very cool. Yeah, I know that for most people, recruiting is really a complete mystery. Like I mentioned it is. early on, there's a lot of kind of urban legends about like, Mm -hmm. well, uh, you do this and nobody will look at it. You don't do this. Nobody will look at it. And even the process of, like you said, talking to a potential candidate, getting them to apply and go through all of that. It's, it's a bit of a mystery. Can you Mm -hmm. kind of walk us through that process and really kind of from finding out to the open head count, filling it, how does that all kind of progress? For sure, for sure. So we won't go too deep into the differences between the two, but there are like two different types of recruiting. So it's agency versus corporate recruiting. So agency recruiting is more third party where you're hired um, as an agency, um, as an executive search, whether it's contract or full time to then uh, to then conduct the talent acquisition or assist in the talent acquisition recruiting for for another company. So you as a recruiter, you don't actually work at that company where versus and, for, and that would be just to be clear, that would be like a headhunter, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So do you, I don't yeah. know if you've specifically been a headhunter, but is that, is, have, that a, yeah. is, is, how do you feel about that word? Is that offensive? I, like I, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I think that in general, I think that um, recruiting has somewhat of a bad stigma to it just because there are i mean it is realistically it is a sales job and like there are a lot of there are a lot of professionals that try their hand in it but um there are just a lot of different things that sort of differentiate the good recruiters versus the bad recruiters and there are a lot more bad recruiters than there are good recruiters which probably <laughs> leads to the stigma i'm just going to be completely honest but i'm shocked um, I'm, I'm completely yeah. shocked <laughs> that'll be the case I want to say maybe a month ago, somebody reached out to me about VBA coding that I did, I think 12 years ago. (laughs) I have not touched that stuff since, but somebody's like, Hey, I got a VBA job for you. And I'm like, no, no, it's just not something. Yeah. (laughs) That that wasn't a past professional career that I had. Yeah. Um, But exactly. That's like the perfect example of, you know, um, unfortunately uh, there are, there are some, you know, recruiters that just throw out, these insane uh, messages to, you know, reach a broad range of, you know, different candidates just to see exactly what sticks. And, you know, that's uh, unfortunately that you know, it kind of, uh, it kind of taints the the whole name of talent acquisition and recruiting in that sense. But, you know, if you do get a really good recruiter and you can always tell by a good recruiter uh, just by, you know, just the overall speed, them getting wanting, them wanting to actually get to know you as a person, because essentially recruiting is all about people evaluation and there are two different sides to it. So 
we are recruiting you and you should also be recruiting us just as equally. So, and it should always be that. And, and just because you are not necessarily a fit as a professional for one specific job does not mean that you're a bad software engineer or you're a bad DBA. It's, it just means that our specific environment just does not, it's not, you know, technically the right fit for what you're looking for or what your interests are. So it's, it's all about the balance and also being able to realize like, Hey, this is this professional's, uh, you know, this is this candidate's pain point. This is what they're looking for. This is what we can offer them. Let's see if this can work. So, you know, you kind of take it by baby steps, but it's all, it's always about, evaluating the other individual and evaluating, you know, yourself as well. So it is really interesting. Well, and I kind of want to dig deeper into that. And, mm-hmm. you know, you talked about it earlier, how you are the sole recruiter mm-hmm. for your current company. So you must, by definition, have a huge impact on the culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, you are the one who are helping navigate who's coming in to those doors mm-hmm. and who is being specifically interviewed for those positions. And I know having worked with you, diversity is really important to you as it should be, Definitely. but you, you don't at the end of the day, make final decisions mm-hmm. in the hiring process. Mm-hmm. So how do you ensure that an office becomes more diverse? Mm-hmm. How do you make sure that it becomes culturally strong? It's not just about finding necessarily the, 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 the best talent at the job. Mm-hmm. It's about making sure they fit in well with the company at large. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. And uh, there, there also is another component to recruiting, outside of, you know, just fielding in uh, applications from candidates that are interested in a job post. You as a recruiter and great recruiters also look and field, you know, potential candidates that they feel are a fit for, you know, any specific role as well too. So my outreach to, you know, two candidates, if, you know, we're looking for an individual that, and we're open to an individual with a non-traditional background, which is, you know, typically uh, without a bachelor's degree, someone that, you know, has come from uh, a, um, a, a like a, a software engineering boot camp or whatever that it might be. I'm also looking for a specific skill set that I know the team is capable of growing as well too, and I can then you know sort of you know champion that uh, that message to that proactive candidate now that I'm reaching out to them and say, hey, this is something that you've had experience doing before in the past. This is also what we can offer. Let's have a conversation and uh just basically take it from there that's a that's a really great response and i i think you know i've, I've worked with some great technical recruiters as well and i 100 in agreement with you on the assessment and it's kind of weird because it reminds me of a lot of alex and i've talked a bit about sports before we started we were talking about sports and it's mm-hmm. interesting how like sometimes yeah you just need that all-star player on the other hand what's interesting too though is when you can talk to people and kind of say hey this person has the, there's, there's a lot of potential. This is a place that will work well for them and you'll build that culture in a positive way. And I think especially your comment about maybe coming to looking for candidates from a non-traditional background. It's amazing how many people I've worked with that are technically amazingly gifted, just mm-hmm. don't have that traditional background. And I think part of it is it's like, they know how to MacGyver the heck out of things. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. So great. No, oh, no, it, it, exactly. And we I would say that, you know, some of our best and um, uh, some of our most technical software engineers, they, you know, were, you know, people and professionals that came from non-traditional backgrounds. So they 
they they have no undergrad, they have no bachelor's um, in anything, and or they have a bachelor's in psychology, they have a bachelor's in business, and you know they somehow found their way uh, in getting interested into software development and uh, or anything with within something else that's not even you know that 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 doesn't even connect to what they studied in college. And, you know, they then invested in their, in their background and they invested in their career. And then they were able to, you know, learn certain things and uh, also, you know, sort of adapt exactly how they conduct their everyday, you know, sort of life as well too at work, just by having some of those experiences that a, a computer science uh, major probably hasn't had that sort of opportunity before in the past as well. So it is really interesting. We want to normalize making non-traditional cadets uh, that come from a non-traditional background, you know, more frequent. So, but that's a challenge because at the end of the day, although it makes perfect sense to say. Let's bring in people with different backgrounds and perspectives because at the end of the day, mm-hmm. when you're all looking at a singular a singular problem, mm-hmm. you're going to be able to look at it from different perspectives. We also recognize that humans are biased towards people who are like that. Definitely. Mm-hmm. For sure. So I imagine that that has to be a challenge. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. you might bring two candidates together and one is cookie cutter definition of what the role should be. Mm-hmm. And here's someone who you look at the impact to the business at large, and you can say this is the right person for us. But you might not always win that battle. I assume you might you might lose that battle more often than not. For sure, definitely, yeah. And uh, you know, I I do have somewhat of an impact when it comes to hiring decisions and you know making sure that we're also making the right decision as well. But yeah, as a recruiter, you do have, you know, the opportunity to, you know, sort of sell yourself or sell, uh, you know, that candidate that you feel very strongly as far as them being the fit. Because uh, generally, as a recruiter, you are the first person that's speaking to this candidate. You're, uh, you're, you're, you're coordinating different steps within the interview process with the candidate as well, too. So, Within that communication, you're always sort of getting more uh, comfortable with that person's background and also their potential fit as well, too. And then uh, also, if a candidate's not basically a fit for that position, then, you know, you also have some of that. You, you have more you have more experience and more opportunities to connect with candidates than uh, a hiring manager might or any any one specific interviewer that might just meet with one candidate one time. So being basically that candidate's advocate can you know sort of sway some of the decisions uh, at points but it is very interesting to sort of think about and um it is awesome to, just to also see that you have the ability to earn the trust of the hiring managers or you know, all the other members of the team so they say ed's really adamant in you know this candidate over the other one Let's let's actually start to have more of a deeper discussion about why this actually might be, and uh, you know, basically try to uncover something that we all never necessarily thought that we aligned on. So it is very very interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm really glad you, you dove into that because even when you when I look at myself, and forget about all the other variables that exist, mm-hmm. but if I'm looking strictly at personality. Mm-hmm. I know me as a natural extrovert, I'm going to be more biased towards other extroverts. But in many ways, an introvert might be more beneficial if I was hiring somebody because they can help 
balance me out and look at things in a perspective that I wouldn't. Right. Yeah. So, so that, so that's a challenge, right? Like my natural biases, mm -hmm. even from a personality standpoint, let alone all the other ways that people can be a minority or, or different than my own, my own self. Mm -hmm. And, and so, but trying to find the best candidate, not just based on my personal biases, mm -hmm. but based on who's going to benefit and culturally benefit from the entire organization. At oh yeah, definitely. Because you want and you want to pick someone generally that you will enjoy working with, right? Like there, there is, yeah. there is a very big um, component to, you know, if, and it doesn't even have to be a technical position, but you want to, you want to actually, you want to be able to collaborate with someone at a very high level and have a beer with them, you know, outside of work or just be able to talk with them about things that are not even related to work as well too. So, you know, trying to get some of those biases out of your evaluation, it is very hard, but we do different things to sort of structure the interview process in a way where we can sort of eliminate all of the interview biases that you might see with uh, any questions that might be asked during an interview. Awesome, yeah. love that information. We're gonna go to break, but when we come back, we're going to continue talking with Ed. Some of the some of the traditional do's and do nots. Are they legitimate? Are they real? And then we're going to get into a little bit more personal with Ed as it relates to his fandom, uh, with with the Bears, with the Cubs, yeah, and his love of Chicago. We'll be right back. What's up, guys? This is Ruben. You may remember me as being the first ever guest on the Between Two Studs podcast. I'm here now to promote my podcast, Guys Who Cry. Me, along with my co-host Adam Cook, we talk about a wealth of topics ranging from crying, men crying, something we all do, to, you know, some lighter things. Uh, for example, our newest episode, Adam and I talked about our dating blunders and just weird date stories. So guys, if you'd be so kind, head on over to Spotify, Anchor, Apple, iTunes, and hit that follow button. Talk to us. Our Instagram is at Guys Who Cry Official. That is Guys Who Cry Official. Check us out. We love to hear from you. All right, we're back with Ed Cisse. Ed, quickly talk to us a little bit about what's been going on as a recruiter in light of COVID. I, I know it's been a really tough year and right now, I mean, you're, you're, you're trying to interview people that, and, and potentially hire people that you've never actually met in, in person. You've never met face to face. What's that like? Yeah, it is. It is very interesting. You know, I obviously never thought that we'd be in this situation, but um, it's uh, it is important to have empathy, you know, with, different situations that are going on right now. There are, uh, there, you know, unfortunately a lot of um, professionals that were laid off or either furloughed and just different, very unfortunate scenarios and situations. But the, the actual very interesting part about, you know, now not getting to meet with any of these candidates is now that I find myself spending more time with them over the phone, definitely like more email communication than, you know, I ever did before in the past. And then also, just uh, making sure that I'm coordinating conversations and other steps in the interview process with with candidates over the phone as well, too. So just uh, take a um, uh, unfortunately, if we do have like a rejection and, you know, there's a candidate that 
doesn't necessarily fit what we're looking for. And the, and we went through, uh, we, we actually went through a period of time within COVID. It was probably like uh, mid, um, probably July or like mid-summer uh, of last year where some professionals just weren't getting, there, there weren't, there weren't any you know, jobs that were open opportunities just like weren't out there and it's very easy to be discouraged if you don't get a job offer so what i wanted to do was you know just to add a little bit and shed a little bit of light into it i gave every candidate a call and told them exactly why we made the decision and so on and so forth so that has been very interesting and we we do want to add a personalized touch to it but just as far as recruiting and bringing in talent without actually seeing them, we, of course, uh, we use like Google Meet and Zoom and, you know, all that fun stuff to uh, to meet with these candidates. Um, but me, myself, personally, I just take more time in talking with them over the phone in our introductory conversation. And the beauty is these people interviewing, they don't have to worry about wearing dress pants. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I know, right? I know, right? I, I have to say, I, for one, love that. I've got a dress shirt that I'll like keep in my office and I'll like put sure. it on when it's like, oh, I need to talk to some people and be on video. And the second yeah. I'm done with that, it's like, all right, put that dress shirt over to the side. I'll use it the next meeting I'm on that requires that. Right. Back to wearing sweatpants. That's right. <laughs> for sure. Uh, for those that are actively looking for jobs. What are some of the simple things that you would suggest to really help stand out? Mm -hmm. Definitely. I would say first off and foremost, if you are able to get into the door and by getting in the door, just having a conversation either with a recruiter or someone else uh, within the hiring team, always make sure that you are sending some sort of thank you message. As far as like an email goes, it doesn't have to be lengthy. It doesn't have to be anything special, but it, just to, you know, sort of, to tell that other person that you spoke with, you appreciate, you know, their time. And also thank you so much for taking the time to also talk about the opportunity as well. Um, I would say that that is like probably my one and most important sort of thing that I would mention as well. Uh, there are a lot of people that, you know, typically ask me just about like resumes, how you should be formatting resumes. What about cover letters? If your job requires a, a high level of written ability, um, then yeah, I will be looking at your cover letter and yes, I will be looking at your resume. But I really want to see exactly, you know, what you can do based off of your skill set and then also where you've done it before in the past as well, too. So there are just few interesting, you know, sort of tidbits to add to that as well, too. But, you know, I look at hundreds of resumes a day. So I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm really like, I, I think that I've got some of the structure down as far as like looking at a resume that has a quick typo or if you, you know, have something on your resume that wouldn't necessarily fit at our company that I'm looking at that as well too. But I don't know if there are, uh, you know, like there's a stigma be, uh, behind uh, resumes that are longer than one page. Um, I mean, my resume is longer than one page. I was going to say, two actually, pages. what's, what's the, what's the protocol on that? I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, especially if you are a professional with five plus years of experience, you know, like you want to be able to, you're not, you're not mashing it into one page. I don't want all of this content on one page, but I want to, I want to be able to look at your full illustration and a summary of what you've done before in the past. And typically like, you know, you can't really do that in three or four bullet points with one job. Mm -hmm. So 
I I don't necessarily look at that, and I don't I don't I don't really I don't I don't really care about how that's typically structured. I, I want to look at like the bulk and like the actual meat of what's on your resume versus like how long it is or or like any other quirky thing like that. Well, I have to say, I love your comment about the thank you because it reminded mm-hmm. me of something. I remember uh, a hiring manager he flat out turned down a candidate because he did not give him a thank you note. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, wow. He's like, yep. If you're not humble enough or gracious enough to send just a little note to say, hey, thank you. I appreciated your time to consider mm-hmm. me. Then mm-hmm. you're not worthy of my time. And I was like, well, exactly. that's fair, I guess. So mm-hmm. teach your own. But yeah, yeah that's a great exactly. point. And I have one final question uh, about, mm-hmm. about the recruiting world. And then I want to talk about some other stuff. But I guess my question is, we live in a world now, especially in the tech space, where people don't stick around very long. Mm-hmm. I, I myself am guilty of this at Dialogue Tech. I stayed less than a year and a half. How do you as a recruiter feel about, hey, you brought on some really great talent. You feel really good about them. And I'm not trying to build myself up, but uh, let's yeah. think of somebody else, right? Like mm-hmm. who, who are able to provide immediate contribution to their organization mm-hmm. and then they leave. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you, how do you deal with that? I guess I would say it definitely depends on the role. So say for example, you know, you can add immediate contribution to a company if you're a software engineer, but why is it that you left a year later? And, you know, we, in the, in the business, we call it like job hoppers. They don't typically stay at a job for you know any longer than a few months. And then they're out looking for their next opportunity. And typically that's to, they, uh, everyone else has their own reasons. It also can be just a contract position or whatever that it might be. But I don't necessarily think that that matters all too much. Now, you know, there are, there are other professionals that are out there that have their own excuses, you know, that, that, that have very, you know, unique circumstances. So you also have to look into that and also ask some of those questions to, to also just dive a little bit further into that. But just as far as like the length of tenure at certain places, if I'm seeing a, uh, a consistent trend that you're staying at one job for eight months, then I'm going to want to ask what happened here? You know, what were some of your reasons for leaving? And what were some of the differences that you experienced in your next job that sort of got you to uh, to leave? So all that stuff is very interesting. I, I know that before in the past, you, you would basically work at the same job for five plus years. And like the five year mark is like basically early, you know, like that's, 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 that's like nothing. There are, you know, plenty of people out there that have been at the same company for, for years and mm-hmm. for their entire career. But those sort of days are, I, I don't want to say that they're gone, but they're very few and far in between where you'll find someone else that, that actually stays at the same company. Just because, you know, you, you want to also be able to challenge yourself and find a different opportunity that presents itself in a way where you will experience that upward mobility. So I think that it's fair for you to try out your, um, your way into another opportunity and see what else is out there for you. Fair enough. I want to switch gears, Ed. Because I know you played football in mm-hmm. college. Did you play? Did you play tight end, right, or wide receiver? Wide receiver. So I also I also played a little bit of tight end as well too. I I uh, I like to sprinkle that in there from time to time, but it was mostly wide receiver. I was gonna say you are one of the few people I've met who are taller than me. 
So, <laughs> so you definitely had yeah. the height. And I know you're a huge fan of the Chicago Bears. Tell us, mm-hmm. tell Ron and I, as strangers, what is going on with the Bears? So, and I, I need to take a really deep breath before <laughs> I go into this. But when you hear folks say the Bears, Mm-hmm. Is that offensive or is that endearing at this point? Because it's kind of like I know for the Bills, everyone talks about, are you going to smash into a table? Tables. And that's like, well, it's kind of endearing because at this point it's like, mm-hmm. well, it's, it's who we are. How, yeah. how do you as a Bears fan feel about that? I I personally don't mind. I already know that we are like low-key kind of the laughing stock of the league. Um, <laughs> and he, we are, we are, and 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 it's not, it's not for the sense that you know we're we're like lovable losers or anything like that, or like we're a notoriously a losing franchise. But we've just made the, we've just made bonehead decisions at the quarterback position for for a very long the time. The third now. largest city in the country has Andy Dalton yeah. as your quarterback. I, I just, I yep. just want to, I want to talk about that. I want to hear about it. Ed, what is going on in your mind right now? So, uh, first off, I'm just going to be completely honest with you. I'm not surprised that we have Andy Dalton. I'm also a, a diehard Notre Dame fan as well, too. And I've never had a I've, – I've never been – I always joke around with all my friends about this, but I've never been a fan of a franchise or of a team that has had, like, a franchise or an elite-level quarterback. So, I don't know what it feels like, and I feel like – I feel like the the football gods are playing a joke on me and it's just like, all right, we're going to give Ed these, these either really, really good teams or subpar teams, but he'll just never have a quarterback. And I love quarterback play. I mean, even, even those, so those listening who are saying Chicago, at one point they must've had a good quarterback. No, No. never. Even, even the 1985 bears. Never. They had a really great defense. They won the Super Bowl. Their quarterback, I don't know anything about him other than he wore sunglasses at every opportunity. Whether it I'm was- sorry, Jim McMahon is not <laughs> he's not a good quarterback. I mean, fun guy, you know, great personality is what it sounds or you know, looks like, but he he was not a good quarterback. Looking at it, it's just it's just incompetence from the front office. And that's what it's always been and that's what it always will be. So we have people making decisions that don't exactly know the sort of impact that we're making on the city. We have very, very passionate fans and um, it just sucks that a lot of these decisions are being made by people that, 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 that don't, that don't necessarily know what they're doing. You know, it sucks, but it is what it is. Oh, the only thing you can do is root for your team and, you know, hope for uh, hope for the best or, you know, lightning in a bottle. Speaking of quarterbacks, we got to talk about Mitch Trubisky, right? <laughs> Especially now that, He's the backup for the Bills this upcoming yeah. year. And I know you were talking a little bit about, like, what are the thoughts as a Bills fan? What are your thoughts about how that kind of happened? And, you know, was Trubisky underrated? Or was it just mm-hmm. it was a legitimate decision that made sense? And Bills, yeah. they need a good backup. What are your thoughts? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, and, Again, I think that uh, the way that I look at football and the way that I look at, you know, offensive philosophy is you have to be a realist. You have to know what you have and you have to know what you don't have. I'm going to be completely honest. Mr. Biscuits is not a good quarterback. Um, <laughs> <he's>, 
I've, I've met him personally, but he seems like he's, you know, a great guy. He's got a great personality. He's a great locker room guy as well, too. But when it comes to X's and O's, if, you know, a guy can't, if, if a guy can't execute at a high level and he doesn't have the offensive awareness that he needs to have, especially at the quarterback position, then you're not going to be successful in the NFL. And unfortunately, we picked a guy that didn't have that much experience to begin with. And uh, we took a shot on a guy that could potentially have a very high ceiling, of course, but I do think he just needs a change of environment to see exactly what he can get out of his career. But you know, if I, I definitely will say this, if there's one, if, if there is one coach and one offensive coordinator right now in the NFL that can get the most out of him, it is Dable. So we'll see what happens. But um, also at the same time, I'm, I personally think that uh, Jake Fromm could potentially vie for that, uh, that backup spot. In Buffalo. So, <laughs> well, it's, so. it's funny that you mention all of that because, you know, I, I obviously I follow what Bills fans think, mm-hmm. and I'm on I'm on the Buffalo Bills subreddit, and I actually yeah. read something really interesting that said that uh, exactly what you just said, which is if there's someone who can revive Drabinsky, mm-hmm. it's it's gonna be Dable, and Dable is almost certainly gonna be a head coach in the NFL next year, almost sure. certainly, yeah. mm-hmm. and so there's a thought that well, what if? Trubisky signed a one-year contract with the Bills. Dable is going to be with the Bills one more year. He gets a head coaching job somewhere, and he brings Trubisky with him. I mean, couldn't that potentially be if, – if, if you're Trubisky mm-hmm. and you're looking at a potential revitalization of your career, because. that would be your best bet ever. I mean, you know, here's the deal. I know I'm not a Bears fan. I haven't watched all the games that you did, but he finished – his career with the Bears with a mm-hmm. passer rating of 87. Mm-hmm. It's not, I mean, on paper, and I know this mm-hmm. isn't fair, but on paper, he's not garbage. Sure. And uh, I don't know which one it is other than, I don't know if it's passer rating or QB rating that has more of a lean and heavy, heavily weighted towards like your rushing stats. Uh, but I'm pretty sure it's QBR. But um, as far as like passer rating, we should probably look into what other defenses that Mitch played because, you know, towards the second half of the season last year, we're playing against a lot of really bad defenses and just a lot of really bad teams. And I don't want to sit here and make excuses. I don't want to sound like I'm some sort of Mitch Trubisky hater. I'm just trying to be a realist here. And I'm telling you, unfortunately, he he did show some 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 really high competency when he played some of those some of those undervalued or unfortunate teams. But the fact of the matter is, is that you don't play any of those teams in the playoffs. So when you do get in a playoff setting and in a highly competitive playoff setting, what are you going to do as a quarterback? You can't afford to throw ducks in the middle of the field. You can't afford to not know what defenses were presented to you basically like within a second's time. Like you have to be able to Look at all of that information and make the right decision. And then also it's all about athletic talent, which I do believe that he does have. But from time to time, he, he sort of shows a lot of a lot of bonehead decision making. So it is what it is. Um, I wish him the best of luck, but I am very happy that he's not in Chicago. Now we just have to deal with Andy Dalton. So we'll see. <laughs> Good luck with that. I mean, I think it's kind of interesting looking at this past year. Yes, the GOAT. He definitely helped prove that it wasn't entirely his coach, mm-hmm. right? That sometimes you can just bring an amazing quarterback in and be awesome. 
But I also mm-hmm. look at Josh Allen, and he's he's a quarterback that everyone underrated. Well, Ed, that's what I was going to ask. I was going to say, I remember you and I chatting Mm -hmm. after the Houston game, after the Bills lost in the playoffs to Houston, and you said, did you see when he tried to throw it to the tight end? And, Mm -hmm. I mean, come on. Like, he clearly doesn't know what is – like, he's doing crazy things. No idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that is a perfect scenario and a perfect example of someone that's, like, so out of body – in a situation like that, that's just like the situation is too big for them as a person or them. But as a player. year later, a year later, yeah. Josh mm-hmm. Allen, what's, yeah. what's your take? So, so I will say this: it is absolutely incredible that one Josh Allen was able to make this big of a transformation in one year. And I'm pretty sure, like in, I want to say the history of the NFL, just as far as his accuracy and uh, and then also. His playmaking ability has always been there, but just accuracy in itself, that's been like, I mean, what a turnaround. We've never, we've never seen one quarterback make that big of a turnaround as far as their accuracy goes. And you were able to then supplement great play calling, his athletic ability, and then surround him with weapons. Surround him with with uh, a great yeah, a great group, a great group of core wide receivers that are some are some are like above average, um, you know. And uh, Stephon Diggs obviously is at an elite level, but you know you're able to surround him around you know talented individuals. So you're able to do that, and you know now it's in my opinion you're just going to need to look at uh, what you can do on the defensive end to to really make this team a core team and uh, to actually make a big playoff run. But I thought you guys were going to do it this year. You had to, you know. You had the key parts to do it, but you know, just uh, defensively, it like the tides kind of seem like they're turning. But I don't know. Ed, what's it going to take to convert you? When are you going to just jump on board, become a diehard Buffalo Bills fan like Ron and I? When are you jump? We're close. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Um, I will say we're close because I don't know how much longer I can take it. About you know, I really don't know how much longer I can take this decision-making as it pertains to the quarterback position. I don't know how much longer I can take it. I really don't. If we do draft a quarterback um, and if we do draft a quarterback high, we'll see what happens. But I have no faith in, I have no faith in Ryan Pace. I have no faith in Matt Nagy or just a little bit of faith in Matt Nagy. It's, I think that a lot of it's not necessarily his fault, but you know, still I have no pay. I have no, I have no faith in Ryan Pace to make the right decision at the quarterback position. So, We'll see what happens. <laughs> I think the important thing is, regardless of where your allegiances lie, just make mm-hmm. sure it's somewhere along the Great Lakes. You good with that? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Great Lakes loyal. Right. Hey, so so speaking of Chicago sports, because because mm-hmm. I know even if you were to jump ship with the Bears, yeah. you will never, ever in a million years jump ship mm-hmm. with the Cubbies. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. you are the only person I've ever met who there's 162 games a year, which by the way, yeah. in my opinion is way too many games. Way too many. Way too many games. I like baseball, <laughs> not 162 games worth. Yeah. You you will watch 162 games. I'll 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 probably watch closer to let's just call it like 130 and then I'll listen to about 15 to 20 and then 
I'll and then I'll catch like bits and pieces of the rest. But it's and this has been this way like my entire life. I I uh, grew up off of uh, Broadway and Wilson um, on the north side, so really close to Wrigley. And um, you know we we freaking stunk as a team growing up, and it was just the only it was just the only thing that I knew. It was really the only thing that I knew. It was uh, a close major sports team that was uh, you know close to uh, my apartment at the time, and and uh, you know now it's just grown to you know thankfully you know the Cubs have been great, and you know we got to experience a World Series in 2016, so that was awesome. But there were a lot of dog days in my early life before this. So I definitely do want to mention that. And I was sitting in college um, watching a, you know, a 65, 70 win baseball team, you know, on a, you know, on a Tuesday and people are like, what are you doing, man? Like, like why <laughs> it's, 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 it's freaking September. Everyone else is, there's no one, there's no one at these games. And I just love my team. That's it. Tell yeah. me what it was like to finally see, the winning of the World Series for the Cubbies. Yeah. yeah After what, exactly. 100, was it 108 years? It was, I think 108 sounds about right. Well, it was uh, 2016, last time we won was uh, 1908. So, yeah, close to it. Wow. Um, so, it, it, all, it all sort of changed at like, at like a drop of a dime. 2015 comes around, you know, we hired Joe Madden. We get John Lester. Uh, obviously, Anthony Rizzo is already on the team. We have the pieces to make. Chris Bryant comes up from the minors in a very short stint, but we have the pieces to like really make an impactful sort of you know season, season one. And you know, you go through that first season, and it's like, wow, we're winning. Think it's buzzing. You know, it, it's we're, we we can we can tell that you know not that we're going to win a world series this year, but at least like we're experiencing a very, very good team that could potentially make a run in the playoffs. And that playoffs was, was awesome. It was because previously in other playoffs uh, or like other uh, seasons and uh, other playoff runs before in the past, we'd get swept by any random team in the NL. And it was just like, okay, like we weren't really that good of a team, but that one wild card game against Pittsburgh. And then, you know, we played uh, the Cardinals uh, in the uh, divisional round as well too. And won that, and it was just like, this team is different. So that was like really impactful. And then being able to have that experience in the playoff for those young players. And then moving on to 2016, I, I swear to God, 2016 in the playoff scene, like it was a full year. <laughs> like it was it was it was a full year there like during the playoffs there were times where you have games um, out west that start at 9 p.m central time and you're you know and you're staying up until until 12 one o'clock you know i believe some games even went into two uh into 2 a.m and it's just like you're sleeping i was i i even slept in my car during some uh lunch breaks you know, just because I was like, dude, this is crazy. Like I'm on, I'm on, I'm on three to four hours of sleep here. And, you know, now we have to turn around and get ready for tonight's game. It was, it was absolutely crazy. And uh, actually funny enough, game seven, when uh, Rajay Davis hit that, uh, hit that three run shot, I was in a bar and the bar went dead silent, dead silent. And um, I was with a huge group of my friends and and then started the rain delay 
so all my buddies were like were like they're just down in the dumps like you know not this again i can't believe it game seven it just ended this way we had the lead i'm telling you i i i had no doubt in my mind we were going to win that game it was it was the most eerie it was the most eerie feeling i've ever had in my life it was i i was like nope i'm i'm not leaving we're gonna stay and we're going to watch the end of the game here and then we're gonna you know, go out to Addison and we're going to celebrate. I, I had no worries at all. No worries at all. And it was, and it was, I'm, I'm literally getting goosebumps right now talking about it, but it was, it was a phenomenal experience. I really hope that you guys get an opportunity to experience like a Super Bowl win. And I think that you, you know, definitely will. You have the pieces to do it, but it's an unreal experience. It was awesome. I got to say, great. I got to say, Ed, I remember that game, game seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know the reason I was rooting for the Cubs more than anything was because of Marv Levy, and that mm-hmm. that name might not mean anything to you, but Marv Levy was the coach of the Buffalo Bills okay. during all four Super Bowls, and he's still alive. He's ninety-five years old or something like and that. Guess which city he resides in? Well, he's from Chicago. He's a Chicago boy. He's a Chicago boy, and he's a die-hard really Cubbies fan. And I wanted him to win for him. Mm-hmm. I wanted to watch it for him. But actually, can I say this? Yeah. I got I got super emotional after that game mm-hmm. because I remember seeing photos of grown men in a chair sitting down in that chair, like like literally like a like a reclining chair, right? Like that they mm-hmm. brought at a graveyard, and they were watching the game on the radio with their father. Yeah. Wow. And and I got goosebumps. I'm not a Cubs fan. Mm-hmm. In fact, since I moved to Chicago, if anything, even though I live on the north side, I've become more of a of a White Sox fan because that's the okay. underdog. That's the that's the new For underdog sure. team. Mm-hmm. But that's that's besides the point. I, I got choked up. I got choked up because I thought, oh my God, if the Buffalo Bills ever won the Super Bowl, that's what I would do. That's what yeah. I, I would go down the Earl Chisholm's graveyard. Yep. My grandfather, who's buried in a Buffalo Bills blanket and yep. Buffalo Bills sweatshirt. That's awesome. And I'd want to have a beer With right there. Listening to the game. Yeah. Right yeah. there, listening to that game. And I got choked up. I, I really mean it. I really did. Yeah. And I said, you know what? For all you Cubs fans, good for you. Mm-hmm. And I hope to have that same day someday. Yeah. in the future for Buffalo Bills fans. And honestly, I think that you will, but I mean, that is just like an awesome sort of scenario to sort of be a part of. I like my dad wasn't, he's not a big baseball fan or anything like that. And uh, so I didn't necessarily have that sort of relationship with him, but I mean, I would want whenever I do pass for my children, for my friends to, you know, to sort of have some of that same homage if, you know, my Cubs or the Bears or Notre Dame or anything like that that I'm you know very interested in you know makes it that far. We've had a guest on here previously who talked about podcasting as a medium. It's kind of like a time capsule. It's almost how he portrayed it. What would your descendants be drinking at your grave with you? Would it be some Malort? Would it be some old style? Or what would you want them to be drinking in honor and memory of you? 
That's a really good question. Um, I'm a really now. I know that I'm drinking uh, some some bourbon right now, but I love craft beer, and I'm a massive local craft beer drinker. Like I I don't I don't drink anything else other than craft beer that's from a local brewery. So I would I'd probably say anything from uh, from Maplewood or from Half Acre Revolution's pretty good as well too, but. Uh, typically, I like to stay within, you know, Half Acre and uh, in Maplewood. They would probably, I would say right now, now this obviously changes because, you know, uh, just new beers come out. And also Mars Brewery is uh, is a really, really great brewery that's high on my list as well. But I would probably say they would be drinking, and this is a really good question. I would probably say... Anything from Maplewood, but probably Charlatan. There it yeah, is. Which is, Ed, which is great Ed, beer. Ed's great grandchildren. Now you know. Now you know what to drink. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you know. Yeah. The, or, record, the record's been set. Yeah. Ed, this is an important question. Not maybe not as important as that question, but you were born and grew up in Chicago. So mm-hmm. set the record straight. Do people in Chicago actually like deep dish? What's the story with that? First off, I will say that I've had a little bit of like a different upbringing. I wasn't I wasn't totally born and raised in Chicago. I, I I was born in Chicago. I left when I was probably about six or so. But my dad um, opened up a series of clothing stores and barber shops uh, out on the north side. So I was you know, um, uh, out in Uptown. So I was, <clears throat> I was always uh, in Uptown, you know, over the weekends and everything like that growing up. Most of my time was spent, or I grew up necessarily in Glenview, Illinois. But um, now that I do live in Chicago, um, I would say, so about Deep Dish Pizza, like, I like Deep Dish. I do. I'm not, I'm not shitting on it or anything like that. But um, I will say Deep Dish is definitely... A, like more of a tourist type of pizza like you know we, thank we you, are ed thank you we are we are we're very much so well known for and known for you know for deep dish pizza of course but if you know the best type of chicago pizza is tavern style pizza and i i, I will go down in my grave saying that now it's 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 a very thin crust that is crunchy easy to eat um i'm a pepperoni guy as well too so i so i love you know some nice uh some nice oven pep on my pizza and it's just great you know you can find it at your you know your local bar the deepest pizza i mean unless you want to take a nap after you can't really eat it it's 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 more it's more or less like a dessert versus you know, having a meal, and you can't have it that often. I'm so thankful you set the record straight because my friends don't believe mm-hmm. me. The only time my wife and I have deep dish pizza is when we have tourists yeah. in town. Yeah. Yeah. We never have deep dish otherwise. I can't tell you the last time I've had deep dish pizza. It probably it's probably been well over a year. That's for sure. Yeah, but tavern style pizza is the best. I mean, um, I love it. Uh, and I think that if, if a tourist were to just get over the fact that, you know, it's the thing to do, you go to your Giordano's, which I think is trash. It's disgusting. I'm a lose guy. I love lose. Um, I'll, I'll also, uh, 
I'll also go to like Paisano's. I'll go to, you know, uh, Vito's and Nick's is a great, great pizzeria out in the South side. But, uh, you know, you get your deep dish pizza just to say that you had deep dish, you know what I'm saying? But like, if you outside of that, if you do have an opportunity to get another style pizza, or if you have, you know, an opportunity to get uh, your, your Italian beefs, your, your Chicago hot dogs, you know, so on and so forth, you definitely should try a nice tavern style pizza from, you know, your local dive bar. So. All right. So Ed, I'm sitting here in front of me is a nice, wonderful bottle of Jepson's Malort liqueur. <laughs> I got to know, because Alex and I've talked about this. Is this purely an initiation right that you bestow upon tourists to say, Hey, you, you, you want to come to Chicago? You want to hang with us? Time for you mm -hmm. to have this. Or is this legitimately a, hey, I come home and I drink two bottles of this every night and feel <laughs> wonderful. And it is the true epitome of being a Chicagoan. Yeah. Now, what, well, where does that lie? So I'll tell you this. The first time that I had Malor, which was probably about, let's just call it five or six years ago, um, and I had never even heard of it. I, I thought it was a fucking joke. Like, I thought that it was that it was like, you know, more or less like a gag gift or like a gag, you know, sort of activity that people partake in just as a joke. And um, I tried it and I was like, this is actually awful. But, you know, then you sort of realize that people people do it and people have it just because it's so bad. And I don't know exactly what the motto is, but I heard that uh, uh, Malort once had a motto. Um, that one in like 29 people enjoy drinking Malort. And it's just like, like that, that is like the perfect description of like the shitty alcohol and drink that it is. But like, there are some people that, that love it. They're ride or dies. And you two are, are prime examples of that. And I don't think I've, and the fact that you two are brothers, and you both like genuinely actually enjoy Malort is like, is very, very unique. And I will say it's very rare, but I, I don't like Malort. I don't think any of my friends like it. Um, actually, actually, uh, sorry about that. I can think of one friend that is like really, really big in Malort. And you know what? Also, I also find that if you are big in Malort, you're just like the diehard, like, you know, you've got, four or five bottles in your house of Malort. You have, you know, uh, you have a bottle of Malort in your, in your office drawer, you know, sitting at your desk in your cube. It's like these, these people are diehards, but you know, I respect it, but uh, Ed, me personally, I don't get it. Ed, so, so you and I and a bunch of, this is post COVID, right? Mm -hmm. You, me and a bunch of other people all show up at a bar together. Right, mm -hmm. we're all showing up, and the first person says, "Hey, six shots of Malort." Are mm -hmm. you gonna decline it? I'm not. I'm not gonna decline it. Like, you can't be that kind of person that's gonna decline it. But like, it's it's just it's a really bad drink. It's a really bad shot. <laughs> like, you know, I I mean, but I respect it. It's fine. It's like something that you know you do as an overall group activity. Like, I would never take a Malort shot by myself. I want someone else right next to me to also suffer into this <laughs> terrible, terrible pain of this drink like I'm doing as well, too. So as long as that's happening, I'm fine with it, but I'll never, ever deny it. It, it honestly tastes like like uh, like gasoline or like you're at a mechanic 
and you have like you know like uh water from like a mechanic uh, drain or something like that it's terrible i don't know but and if you had to guess what per- i mean you you said one in 29 earlier but if you had to yeah. guess mm-hmm. what percentage of chicagoans that you know drink it drink it like drink it like you two do or yeah enjoy it in some in some capacity 4 or 5% yeah right because like you know alex you have you have you have several bottles and so do you ron oh yeah you two are like you i i could only see that the the market for actual malort buyers and drinkers are they they buy in bulk and you're taking a lot of the quantity of what's actually available there's no way like someone like me is walking in a liquor store and saying, I, I've never even thought about walking in a liquor store <laughs> and even thinking about like purchasing the Lord ever. I, you know ever. what, Ed, <laughs> you make a valid point. Cause I've never bought a single bottle of Malort ever. <laughs> Every time I've ever bought Malort, I'm usually buying somewhere between six and 12 bottles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And it's like because you don't want to have to go through the trouble of actually going to the liquor store again and being seen as that psychopath that is getting one <laughs> bottle of Malort. <laughs> well, I like it too because Alex has described it to me. He said, when you go and you buy Malort, and when people see that you're buying like six bottles, 12 bottles, 24 bottles, they know that you're about to bring goodness unto the world. Oh, yeah, definitely. Right. <laughs> Ed, Ed, final question of the night, Mm -hmm. because I think this is an important one. Mm -hmm. When life returns to quasi normal, Mm -hmm. what's the first thing in Chicago that you want to be able to do that you haven't been able to do in over a year? Definitely going to a Cubs game. And then um, I love live concerts, you know, whether it's uh, an outdoor venue or an indoor venue have an opportunity to like be at a concert with other people around that's just what i'm looking forward to and at some point in time we'll we'll uh, get the shot and get the chance to you know to do that again but those are probably two things that i'm definitely looking forward to awesome yeah well i have to say ed uh this has been a pleasure getting to meet you and just yeah. a pleasure to kind of hear a little bit about some of the fun that goes into being a chicagoan Mm-hmm. And been fun talking sports, been fun talking, been fun talking a little bit also about your career and uh, in general. Thanks for coming yeah, on the show. It's been a pleasure. Okay. We're going to hopefully have you back soon in the future. Definitely, definitely. And uh, I've also enjoyed it as well. Uh, you know, hopefully some of the listeners take something from, you know, any of the professional uh you know, advice that I gave from a recruiter standpoint. And then secondly, you know, best of luck to you guys with this uh, upcoming football season. And, you know, hopefully Mitch turns out for you because he sure as hell didn't for us. Well, hopefully we don't need <laughs> him, but it's good to have a backup yeah, that's true. That, that's true. that hopefully can win us a game if we need it. That's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Hopefully we can uh, uh, give Matt Barkley a call and, you know, ask him to come back. To <laughs> yeah, Chicago. maybe – Maybe Matt Barkley can be the starter (laughs) of Chicago. (laughs) I wouldn't hate it. All right, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you so much.